0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org
1: and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Maybe you've done this before. Typed into Google the address of your childhood home or maybe a pizza place you went to growing up. See how it looks now. If it's in a big city, odds are you can see how it changed through the years. Little imperfect snapshots in time. It could be someone remodeled that house you grew up in. Maybe the pizza place turned into a ramen shop. Maybe those buildings have been torn down altogether and replaced by a drugstore or whatever. But usually those online searches only take you back 10, 15 years. And the photos don't look that great. But what if I told you you could go even further back in time? and see the history of small places in cities in brilliant high-resolution clarity. That is, in part, the work of Rick Prelinger. Rick is an archivist and a professor at UC Santa Cruz. He's also a collector of found and discarded footage, home movies, outtakes from industrial videos, never-before-seen B-roll from old feature films, He's digitized, labeled, and archived literally thousands of hours of it. With his partner, he co-founded the Pralinger Library in San Francisco, which collects similarly ephemeral stuff out-of-print books, magazines, flyers, photographs. Maybe my favorite part of his work, though, is a thing called Lost Landscapes. It's a series of movies Pralinger cobbles together from his archives. So far, he's covered San Francisco, Los Angeles, Detroit, and more. All of them are stunning to watch, especially if you've lived in any of those places. You can view all of the Lost Landscape films on Rick's website, and you should. But maybe the best way to take them in is when he shows them live. He presents the films in a big auditorium without a soundtrack, he grabs a mic and sort of acts as a tour guide, and you, the audience, are encouraged to chime in. Questions, memories, exclamations, whatever. It's really special. Here's a little bit from a recent Lost Landscapes Rick hosted in San Francisco. He's showing the audience some old tourist footage of Alcatraz.
0: 1956. Still an active. Prison, of course. Sometimes in home movies you can see inmates in the yards. Not so much this one. When did Alcatraz close? 56. Oh, when did it close? Yes, yeah,
1: 62. Rick Prelinger, welcome to Bullseye. I'm so happy to have you on the show. It's a pleasure. You have some amazing Alcatraz footage. I was watching some footage uh, that you had of the people launching a boat headed to Alcatraz for the native occupation.
0: Yes. That's a whole movie with a really interesting story shot by a man named Sykes, who was a black activist in the, um, in the rehabilitation business, came to San Francisco to um, try to shake up the national... Trade Association, and he shot all sorts of things. He hung out with Earl Caldwell, who was the reporter embedded with the Black Panther Party, and Angela Davis, and he he shot the activists on the way to Alcatraz. Um, that that boat is still running, and uh, the son of the captain was in the audience. So great things happen, you know.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. What, what's different about if we if we take that footage of. Uh, Alcatraz that was being shown in the screening that we heard a little bit of the audio from. Why is that particular footage of Alcatraz interesting to you or distinctive when there are obviously, uh, you know, hundreds of hours of footage of that famous prison, not least of which is the, the hit film, The Rock?
0: You know, we're used to citizen journalism today. We're used to people um, photographing uh, sometimes terrible and unfortunate things just because they're there with their phone. Back in the home movie era, this didn't happen so much. And so when you have footage that wasn't shot by pros, it wasn't shot by, I don't know, Universal Newsreel, but it was shot by somebody that just happened to capture FDR walking or the Bonus Army in D.C., you know, uh, lining up for food in their encampment across from the Capitol. It's very special. And it's, it's the view of uh, ordinary folks recording history, just because they were there. Um, rare and uh, always quite exciting. Different point of view as well.
1: I think, for me, one of the most exciting things about the footage that you collect particularly is... The footage that is not of significant historical stuff, you know, FDR walking, as you mentioned, right? But uh, just uh, moments of streetscape. I mean, you know, you've you've made uh, some films about Los Angeles, where where I live, and seeing the neighborhood that's called Skid Row in the fifties or whatever. Um, is incredibly transporting and kind of leads to a new understanding of a place that you might not get from reading a description of it or, you know, looking at it now.
0: That footage of uh, fifth street in Los Angeles, you know, a very troubled neighborhood, which is now filled with blank walls and sidewalks on which people camp when they're permitted to by the police, uh, Back in the 40s and 50s, that was a neighborhood that was vibrant, filled with stores, filled again with people who might have had some substance abuse issues, but also filled with older folks, with new Americans, with people who were part of the casual workforce. They might go to fight fires or um, log or get casual work loading freight cars. And um, it's a vision into a part of the economy and a part of society that was um, living and real, and we don't see anymore. And uh, I think we, we think of the future of our cities a little bit differently when we get into the details of the past. We can't go back. You know, I'm not a nostalgic person, but I do believe that a lot of the templates for the world that we might want to live in, the world we would hope to live in, can be found um, or can be understood by, by seeing this rich imagery from the past.
1: Do you remember the first piece of ephemera that you saved?
0: Well, ephemera. So my whole life, I've always collected something. I was one of those kids that collected stamps and coins back in the mainframe computer era. I would go to the computer center in my city and ask for old IBM cards. But the
1: first... Th- my dad my dad complained to me that when we were walking to preschool together from the Glen Park BART station in San Francisco, uh, he would have to physically drag me because I would be like picking up eucalyptus nuts off the ground for my eucalyptus nut collection. <laughs> <laughs> well, this
0: is... Right. You know, so we were squirrels. You know, we were we were looking for sort of intellectual nourishment that we would carry in our pockets, perhaps. But I'll tell you, the first film I collected was in uh, 1982, and it was a film. Um, it came from the collection of the Grand Rapids Police Department, and it was a film called When You Are a Pedestrian. It was about how to walk safely, and it was shot in Oakland on the streets of Oakland by a man named Bainbridge, who put his actors at risk? Because he just sent them out into traffic to walk in front of cars and to jaywalk with their <laughs> with their children, and you know to walk along the to walk the wrong way along the side of the highway leading to the tunnel. Um, and I don't think the cars knew that this was a movie, so it was great. And what sent me about that movie was it was shot in Oakland, as I told you, a place where I'd lived. And it was such a rich picture of what the city of 1948 looked like. You know, in the middle, you had some kind of simulated accident, kids falling off their bikes or hanging onto milk trucks and getting into trouble. But on the sides and the periphery was all the life of the city. And that's what got me collecting film.
1: When you find a a movie like that, uh, what can you do to learn about who made it? And how concerned are you that uh, someone who has some claim to it uh, will interfere with you archiving and sharing it?
0: So I spent a lot of time uh, researching the context of films, who made them, the companies that made them, who were the people, where did they go, what's their story? Um, One of the amazing things about The United States is that we are the most media rich country in the world. We produce more media than, or we throw away more media, I should say, than other countries ever produce. And um, because of peculiarities in our copyright law, a great deal of this media was never copyrighted. Or if it was copyrighted, it was not renewed. Or perhaps they didn't observe all the formalities. So, uh, an overwhelming majority of work that was made before 1964 is in public domain. And then even a lot of work made before the 80s is also in public domain. So, I've always had this great privilege where I can like, I can go over to the shelf and pull a film and you know quickly check copyright on it, and there's a very good chance I'll be able to use it. Uh, so just a tremendous, uh, it's, it's a, the public domain is an amazing resource. Uh, and most filmmakers don't, most media makers don't know about it, but it's generationally unjust because I'm a boomer and my culture, a lot of my culture is in the public domain, but if you're a, a Gen Xer or if you're a millennial, or if you're younger than that, your culture is copyrighted. So you run some risks if you want to make work that, you know, rises above a certain level on the horizon
1: one of the problems uh with that risk you know as a media maker myself is that it is um it's disproportionate it's um uh you know it's like uh it's like having a lot more one side has a lot more nuclear weapons um (laughs) you know like the the issue is that if you presume something is in the public domain or is fair use according to copyright law and you are wrong or even accused of being wrong it can be catastrophic unless you're on a unless you're working on a huge scale and that is that feels that feels so scary to me as somebody who who makes stuff and sometimes has to like use some of stuff that, you know, we use stuff that we don't have explicit permission to use on this show, every episode, (laughs) you know,
0: there's a chilling effect. Um, I always tell my students, you know, and I tell independent filmmakers and artists that if you're making work, that's not going to go on Netflix, you know, please get the pig out of your head. Just make your work, you know, don't be, don't be chilled. But if you are trying to make work, that's going to go into mass distribution for sure, you have to think about that. But there's good news, which is that um, fair use, which is not a right. Fair use is not a right. It's a defense. But there are best practices for fair use for people working in documentary and working in art and, and other areas. Um, and if you observe those best practices, you're very likely to be able to get insurance and get your production distributed. Uh, and, you know, um, a lot of major films are are. are fair use now. And um, so it, it's bad, but it's much better than it was.
1: We'll have even more with Rick Prelinger after a short break, including the time Rick found a video of himself at five years old in someone else's home movies. Stay with us. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Culturel. IBS symptoms can be tough to manage with diet alone. Culturel IBS Complete Support is a medical food for the dietary management of IBS, designed to relieve the intensity and reduce the frequency of severe digestive symptoms associated with all IBS subtypes. Save 20% on IBS Complete Support with promo code RADIO on culturel.com or For occasional digestive issues, try Culturel Probiotic Supplements.
0: A few years ago, a website popped up in Stockton, California, and conspiracy theories started ramping way up. And it's being funded by conservative movement underneath the table. And I was like, oh my gosh, you guys, people really believe this.
1: What happens when the local news outlet isn't fact checking conspiracy theories, maybe encouraging them? Listen now from NPR's Invisibilia podcast. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Rick Prelinger. He's a professor and archivist and one of the leading collectors of video ephemera. The Prelinger Archives, which he co-founded, compiles tens of thousands of films that document America as it was. There are home movies, outtakes for educational videos, and all kinds of other non-traditional formats. About 20 years ago, it was added to the collection of the Library of Congress. Let's get back into our conversation. One of the things that, to me, is so special about your archive, much of which is online and available for free, is that it gives a centralized resource, or a semi-centralized resource, to filmmakers who are looking for that kind of stuff because they need it for their work, and they need more information than they might have if they, you know, if they found it on the street. You know what I mean?
0: We're trying to get better about this all the time, trying to get better about annotating what we put online, trying to put more online. But um, you know, when, when I first met Brewster Kale, the founder of Internet Archive in ninety nine, we were on the phone and in the first like thirty seconds of our conversation, he said, Hey how would you like to put your archives online for free? It was a real speed date. And honestly, I didn't quite know how to respond because I said, you know, I... I, I stuttered. I was like, well, uh, you know, this is how I make my income charging for access to the collection. But after a while I realized he was right. And I came to realize we've got to tweak the, we got to monkey wrench, the economy of archives because archives at that point were so enclosed and honestly they still are because it's expensive to digitize stuff. It's expensive and risky to put it online depending on, on what it is. And, um, Most of the great stuff in moving image archives you can't see online. And um, I really wanted to monkey wrench that and make a lot of material available and and see what would happen. Uh, You know, one of the things I wanted to do was um, give everybody the opportunity to comment on American culture, you know, to find their own residents and find their own families uh, uh, you know, where their family had come from. I wanted, I wanted newer Americans to be able to understand the heritage of the nation that they'd, they'd migrated to and look at it critically. I wanted every kind of emergent generation to like look at all this stuff and, and come up with their own attitude towards it. And that sort of happened. You know, people, makers, everybody uses that stuff. And what's great is I don't know how it's used. Our collections like vanished into the internet. It's become infrastructure. And that's the highest destiny of an archives that it becomes something that people use every day. You know, it becomes like air and water. Nobody asks any questions. There's no special rigmarole needed to, to invoke history. History should be like, you know, air that surrounds us. It should be everywhere. It should be available at a moment's notice. And so, uh, I feel great about that.
1: One of the things that attracted me to your work was that you have made films about uh, the city that I'm from, San Francisco, and the city in which I live, Los Angeles. And, you know, obviously, <laughs> me being from those places, there is special interest to me in looking at the placeness of it, looking at the physical place of it. And that is, is in a lot of ways, the theme of those landscapes films that you've made. Is that interest in landscapes and the way they change and the way they interact with our lives something that came out of the film collection or something that, you know, fed the film collection?
0: That's a a thoughtful question, and I think the truth is that I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. New Haven got the lion's share of the redevelopment money from the feds in the 50s and 60s, and they tore the heart out of the city. It was like a donut after they finished, a big hole in the middle. And I became fascinated with what had been on the streets before they built all these vacant lots and these buildings that themselves became derelict You know, some years later. So I started looking at old photographs, old postcards, moved to California to go to school, got fascinated with the way that the past is always present in California, where you have buildings from the 30s and 40s because the weather is good, you know, coexisting with the newest construction. And um, and it seemed natural to start looking for the evidence in these films, and that's, as I said about Oakland, Uh, these films were such great evidence. And it has been a self-feeding thing. I live now to find new footage of Los Angeles. Like I look for, I'm looking right now for home movies of East LA, of the Barrio, of uh, neighborhoods in the inner city, uh, black neighborhoods in Los Angeles, not just uh, Central Avenue, but also right around downtown as well, Uh, and finding that material excites me because I know that it's going to mean a lot to people that are trying to uh, understand the history of, of their neighborhoods and the history of their communities. Working right now on Chavez ravine, you know, there's very little footage of Chavez ravine. Um, I found footage of the elderly folks home, you know, for, uh, it was called, uh, Los Fietos up on the Hill. There was like a, a private home for elderly people and Chavez ravine. It's amazing footage. It's in the, it's in the LA film. Uh, and it's, it's a pastoral, countrified people living among the eucalyptus, you know, it's like nothing, nothing you could imagine today.
1: I think the story of, Chavez Ravine is a revealing one. It is, of course, the place where Dodger Stadium was built in the 1950s, and it was a, a very small community. Folks who are interested in the in the story of this should listen back to it. we we did a we did a whole episode of Bullseye about it. But um, uh, one of the things that is revealing about it is that when urban landscapes change um, you know, there is an element of inevitability. There's an element of like the cyclical nature of buildings, you know, as you mentioned, weather affects buildings, right? Like, uh, eventually you have to replace the roof or, or else your building collapses, but there's also an element of power. And I wonder what you see when you look at historical footage of places and think about the cultural and economic powers that shape it.
0: So once you start thinking about film, once, let me say it this way. Once you stop thinking about film as just entertainment, and when you think about it also as evidence, I mean, it's always entertaining, but it can also be evidence. You begin to look at these small traces. And one of the things that happens when I do these, um, urban landscape events uh, is that we're taking movies that were made for viewing, you know, in a family environment on a small screen and blow them up to a big screen. And you see all the detail and the audience becomes, the audience turns into cultural geographers and ethnographers and linguists. You know, they get very, very into the evidence and you can start to see the signs of, let's say, gentrification and displacement, even back in the 30s and 40s. Um, yesterday in my, uh, class at UC Santa Cruz, we had a woman named, uh, Marisol Medina Cadena, who's, um, producing podcasts for KQED. And she said, when she worked for KCT in LA, she learned that gentrification is a long process. It's sometimes 30 or 40 years in the making like Bunker Hill in LA. It took years to, uh, reclaim that neighborhood for big business. And in these films, you can start to see the signs. Uh, and, um, you know, you can kind of pick apart history with sort of mental tweezers and look at what's old and what's new and what's being threatened and how populations are starting to be pushed in different directions by forces that they don't control. So, yeah, I mean, I'm going on a bit about that, but the film evidence is so vivid. Um, yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, I I grew up in the Mission District in San Francisco, and um, I I remember being told as a teenager in the late 1990s when the first internet boom was kind of sweeping across the city um, that this was a neighborhood that had always changed. You know, you say, well, it used to be an Irish neighborhood. My wife has Irish-American relatives who lived there in the, you know, 30s and 40s. And, you know, it it, it only it only became a, a Latinx neighborhood of, you know, uh, Mexican and Central American refugees in the sixties, seventies, and eighties. And so all this that I saw as permanent was relatively new. And I remember feeling very deeply that while all of those things were true, what they didn't account for was the relative power of those forces, right? That when my mom got evicted, <laughs> owner move-in evicted from her apartment when I was 11, um, that she had no agency to exercise in that change, whereas someone else had had full agency. Someone had bought the building and moved their daughter into my mom's apartment so they could clear it out. And, um, that is, uh, those kinds of forces are ones that you, you kind of have to, you kind of have to reveal when you're putting together a, a film, like your films, like you, it is the juxtaposition it is the choices that you're making that, that show that.
0: It's putting history and people together. Uh, my movies, people talk during the screening. So there, there is some sound, but a lot of them are silent. And the audience is invited to talk back. And sometimes it's people asking questions. Sometimes it's people telling uh, stories of their own lives or their families. Sometimes it's people arguing. But it's that juxtaposition of evidence and uh, testimony. You know what in Spanish would be called testimonios, personal uh uh, memory stories that that aren't necessarily considered history by scholars, but are still incredibly valuable evidence. That's I think what you have to do. I'm going to say one other thing. You know about um, about the 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 San Francisco. You know there is this this feeling that the um, that it became a, a, a Latina Latino Latinx neighborhood um, in the '60s, but we have a home movie of a Mexican-American family from about 1951, 52, a little further down in the Excelsior. And um, this is a family that's really well situated in San Francisco, a uh, working family. But, you know, I'd love to know who these people were. I'd love to get them back their film. It's a beautiful, wonderful film. And they're hanging out with their Irish neighbors and having birthdays and having a quinceanera. And it's just, it's it's. Uh, it's the kind of film that everybody's got to see because it changes your sense about the history of your home.
1: We'll finish up with Rick Pralinger in just a minute. Stick around. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Fidelity Wealth Management. VP Dylan Sanders shares why it's important to understand clients' values. At times, it feels difficult to work towards just a dollar amount. And having a conversation about what wealth is for brings excitement and purpose to all the work in getting there. To learn more, go to fidelity.com slash wealth. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Rick Pralinger. Rick is one of the foremost collectors of video ephemera home movies, industrial videos, that kind of thing. He and his partner have their own library in San Francisco. He also runs the Prelinger Archive, which is housed in the Library of Congress. When you are making uh, one of these landscape films, of which you've made quite a number, I mean, you've been making one a year in San Francisco for uh, 10 or 15 years now.
0: I made about Um, 27 of them.
1: Yeah, (laughs) there you go. So... So besides just, you know, pulling your selects from whatever you've found that year, just finding the most interesting stuff uh, that happens to be in the films that come in through your front door, what choices are you making when you put these pieces together?
0: So it's funny. It is really meticulous, but it's also a jam at the same time. Um, I've done this so often that I, I look at material and I see something I might like to work with. I shove it on a timeline and I start moving it around and I've got a 15 hour long film. And then I start cutting, cutting, cutting. Cause as my friend Keller Easterling once put it, subtraction is growth to me. That's the principle of editing, you know, subtraction is growth. And, um, it's very intuitive. Some of the thoughts are, um, that there are different kinds of landscapes. There's public landscapes, streets and buildings and freeways and skylines and public events, demonstrations, ceremonies, but there's also the private and intimate landscape. There's family scenes, there's backyards, front yards, there's people driving in a car on a new freeway, whatever. Uh, And so you modulate public and private and, um, and there's a tempo
1: Do you think of those films as having a story?
0: Do I think of those films as having story? You've just asked me a question that, uh, you know, okay, we have another hour to talk about that because story (laughs) is so complicated. If you are a maker, a producer, a museum curator, a designer, you are told these days that everything is about telling stories. If you want to get money to make something and get your project past the gatekeepers, you've got to tell a story. You've got to have characters. You've got to have an arc.
1: Cornette Films was one of the most uh, prolific and significant producers of the kinds of educational films that people think of when they think of the parody of a film projector being rolled into a classroom in 1960 uh, or 1958 and you know this is how this is how jimmy brushes his teeth plays um do you have a favorite in their oeuvre
0: oh carnat films you know well, there's 2000 of them you're asking me a very very hard question um but <laughs> i like are you popular which was made in 1947 and it was part of this great movement after world war ii when society lost control of teenagers it was made to try to train kids how to be kids again and it's kind of the definitive statement on you know uh gender roles on penalizing sexually expressive girls on um sort of control it's 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 about how you have to conform in order to be accepted by people around you
1: do you laugh at the films that you watch
0: uh yeah i um i find that these films still trigger me in a lot of different ways and a lot of times i see things that are pretty funny but lately i have been laughing Outtakes. And I'll tell you why. Uh, in 2002, our collection was acquired by Library of Congress. Our collection up to that point, it was 18 tractor trailer loads of film, about 200,000 cans. And among it, that stuff were some really large collections of industrial outtakes that I'd acquired. And last year, the Library of Congress said, you know, we're not going to keep these outtakes. Do you want them back? And I said, sure. And we got about 19 pallets of outtakes back. There's going to be more. And my spouse, Megan, and I have been transferring. I I assemble rolls, and she scans, and it's this world of It's an alternate 1960s and 1950s because it's stuff that wasn't used, and it's just incredible. And that's where you find the humor, these really small movements, you know, uh, the mistakes, the the blooper. I mean, but it's more than bloopers. It's just it's a very odd view of of the past. And, of course, it's all pristine, so it's hyper-real. It could have been shot yesterday. So I laugh at outtakes.
1: When I was watching films from uh, your collection in the internet archive, uh, which is available for free online, I remembered (laughs) upon looking at the most popular videos that maybe like one time, like 10 years ago, uh, my co-host on another show who's a comedy writer and I for a pledge drive thing had pulled short films from that archive to write jokes about. Um and obviously, you know, the folks at at Rift Tracks and uh Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Cinematic Titanic have made a living doing that. Uh what do you think when you watch uh one of these painstakingly preserved slices of history and see it as a as a venue for dumb jokes?
0: I love it. And I wanna say, you know, a mystery science theater, Joel Hodgson, who's gonna come speak in my class next month, um, Mystery Science Theater is a class act because there are there are riffs and there's gags that, you know, if you're an ordinary Minnesotan, you'll get there's riffs and tracks. And, but, there, but there's stuff that, you know, if you have a Ph.D. in literature, you'll you'll get it. It just works on many, many levels and a lot of great comedy uh, approaches different people differently, but all at the same time. It's kind of an orchestral score. And uh, and that's I think their great achievement that they've they've made something that you know, in uh, in in academia we would say it's multivalent. It happens on a lot of different <laughs> levels at the same time.
1: Also caring, I imagine that you find common cause in their very sincere interest. When when I talk to Kevin Murphy or Bill Corbett about um, about the movies that they're mocking, uh, which they are to some extent mocking i am I'm always struck by how much they love them. They love them and yeah, yeah, and I know that you love this stuff too. yeah,
0: yeah. you can't um, you know uh, you know you can hate some of the ideas and you can hate the fact that these films were weaponized sometimes for bad purposes, but um, you think of the people making them and the the workers putting these films together uh, and um, and I do feel a bond.
1: One of the most remarkable kinds of film uh, that you have in your archive and that you often use in the landscape's films is the film that was shot to be rear projected in bigger budget productions. Tell me about what that film is and why it's consequential.
0: So imagine that you are watching a Hollywood, let's say a film noir from 1949, 1950, and there's a chase and people get into a taxi cab and out the back window of the taxi cab, you see the street going by and it's, you know, in the movie, it's out of focus and maybe it's bouncing up and down. That's a process plate being projected in the rear of a a car that's cut out. Uh, And it turns out that those process plates are actually rock steady, razor sharp, locked down views of cities, country, uh, oceans and skies, the whole world. Uh, And they were not shot to be a record, but it turns out they're an amazing record. Something about when you move through space in a car, you also feel like you're moving through time. I don't really know how to describe it, but there's an uncanny feeling about it. Uh, in the same way that you're driving down 8th Avenue in New York in the last few days of World War II and gas is still being rationed. So there's not a lot of cars on the street, but people walk in front of the camera and they look at the camera and you see the wartime recycling guys with these huge carts of cans and scrap paper that they're carrying just using the energy in their back and legs. And, I mean, you are there. It's just – it's uh, – you are in the middle of some scene in the past, so I love those, and I, I use them whenever I can find
1: them. I love that some of the best stuff that you find is garbage, and some of the best stuff that you find are treasures. That you are getting the value out of outshots from industrial films. Left left leftover reels of film from industrials, the most garbage of all garbage. And you're getting material from people's home movies that is the most treasure of all treasures, at least for those people. It's kind of a beautiful thing.
0: It's kind of like bottom feeders find the treasure. I don't know, you know, uh, I think it's that every day. Uh, I sometimes tell people at screenings, you know, take your phone and photograph gas stations, photograph the, the vaping stores, photograph the, the bar, you know, take pictures of 7-Eleven, the hot dogs rolling around on the grill. That's the kind of thing we're going to want to remember. Uh, it's, it's, it's people who had the foresight to capture a little bit of that fabric of daily life that gets forgotten. Uh, you know, I'd love to know what the world was like when I was a kid, and I can't because we, we didn't shoot home movies. But I can look at other people's home movies and get a sense of, of kind of how the, uh, the material space has changed. I think those are really important uh, for people to see and remember.
1: You're an anti-nostalgist, and uh, that's a value that I, I share, at least in theory. Um, maybe two years ago, I saw some photographs by a a photographer who's based in the Bay area named Janet Delaney that she had shot when in the late 1980s, when I was a kid in the mission district where I grew up and she was really into shooting, um, public gatherings, uh, you know, the Cinco de Mayo parade and stuff like that. And it was a sensory rush like almost nothing I've ever had in my life (laughs) to see my, what I still think of as my home represented directly in front of me in a way that, you know, outside of, I guess, uh, exteriors in the movie sister act uh, I had basically never seen in that way. You grew up in new Haven, Connecticut. Have you ever had that experience of seeing not just like a place where you live, but a place where you are from, on film? I, a few
0: years ago on eBay, I saw a film for sale called Homes of Connecticut and I bought it. And when I got it, I scanned it and it turned out that there were all these sequences shot in my neighborhood between, I don't know, 1941 and 46 long, long, long before I was born. And it was a revelation to see My city during World War II, it was a revelation to see housing projects uh, that had turned into horrible places to live by the time I was a kid, when they were still idyllic, New Deal-based garden apartments. It was wonderful. And I started digging more into this film, and it turned out that it was actually shot by the uh, grandfather of somebody I went to elementary school with. And when I contacted the family and we got them some of their family materials back, they said, hey, you should scan our home movies, too. And I found Field Day when I was in, like, fourth or fifth grade. So I actually found myself in one of those home movies. And otherwise, I don't think I've ever been shot. So, uh, you know, funny things happen. Funny things happen. We didn't have home movies. Um but and to find myself in a friend's home movie turning around and looking at the camera, that was weird.
1: Do you shoot yourself
0: film? You know, here and there I I I shoot a video with my camera. I, I, I shot a tiny bit of home movie film when I was like eighteen, but I don't even know where it is. Uh I like to add it. I, you know, <laughs> the world, uh, the world is so filled with orphan media. Why well, create more of it? Right.
1: Do you, I like imagining it as a protective act. <laughs> I don't think that if you shot film, it would necessarily have feelings of being lonely. But
0: <laughs> No, but, but, uh, you know, okay. So today, um, uh, Megan is sitting behind the glass door scanning film. And by the end of the day, we're going to have two terabytes of new digital files. And those two terabytes are like our children. They have to be taken care of. They have to be duplicated. They have to be migrated and stored in three different places. That's a responsibility. It's a life sentence. And so, you know, um, I, I will tell you a lot of socially conscious archivists right now are questioning how much material we should actually save because of the cost of, uh, of keeping it on the environment. It's like making NFTs, you know, uh, that, uh, it's, it requires electricity and electricity contributes to climate change. And so there is this question, um, which right now I'm sort of finessing, but, uh, you know, it's, it is litter. It, it's going to have to be taken care of. Um, and uh we don't have any answer to it i you know we when films that came back from the library of congress that we gave the library of congress and they gave back to us nobody wants them and if we don't keep them nobody else will we are like this is the last stop and if i have to throw something away it's a really complicated feeling because uh you know and this is true with a, in a lot of media um Who's going to keep it? And in some cases, nobody will.
1: What's the most beautiful thing you've seen on film in, let's say, the last month?
0: The most beautiful thing I've seen on film in the last month, I'm going to talk about a man named Henry Fleischer, who went by the name Henry Charles, who was wounded in World War II and went to NYU film school on the gi bill and learned about humanistic documentary moved back home to jersey and started making films about the jersey shore you know uh for tourist boards and so on but he also made these industrials these are the the most public spirited businesses in new jersey and he saw his work as art his films are filled with reflections and views through many layers of glass and, and, and uh, movement of camera corresponding to the movement of cars in the frame. It's very poetic. It's very beautiful, and yet the subjects are the most banal you can imagine. And every shot, he has something red in it even if it's a woman wearing red shoes or a worker driving a red pickup truck through the parking lot. And it's one of these people who's, who made, whose life was very quiet, but everything he did, he did with a spirit of, um, of making art. And nobody really knew it. Nobody really probably saw this except himself and his editor and maybe us.
1: Rick Prelinger, I'm so grateful to you for taking the time to be on the show.
0: Thank you for your extremely thoughtful questions, and I hope people will use the
1: archives and make new work. Rick Prelinger, as you probably guessed, there aren't any live showings of Lost Landscapes planned right this moment, but we will have a link for you to watch the entire collection. They're all breathtaking. Just find the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created out of the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California, where I had to deal with a pigeon that my son said was probably still alive, but upon further inspection was definitely not. RIP pigeon. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. Jesus Ambrosio and Jordan Cowling are our associate producers. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Production fellows at Maximum Fun are Richard Roby and Valerie Moffat. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is by The Go Team, thanks to them and to their label, Memphis Industries. You can also keep up with the show on social media. We're on Twitter at Bullseye. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. And we are on YouTube. You can search on any of those platforms and and find our interviews there. You should smash that subscribe button on YouTube. Feels gross even saying that phrase. I apologize. And I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.